Well, there's this uh, young boy who was continually getting in trouble at school. Uh, Because of his preoccupation with trouble, he built a relationship with the principal that many would call love-hate. This particular morning, this young boy got in another fight at school. And as a result, he was ushered in once again to the principal's office, and the exasperated principal just asked this young boy, what's the rationale this time? Like, what's the reason for picking another fight? Young boy looked at him and said, no reason. I just felt like it. That other boy is looking at me funny. The principal looked at him and said, you know you're going to get into trouble if you pick fights. Young boy said, I know. I don't care. Give me your best. Principal lowered his head, closed his eyes, contemplated his next words carefully. They looked at the young boy and said, we're going to do things differently today. I have a lesson I want to teach you. I'm going to teach you about grace. Grace is a gift. It means you will be getting something you cannot earn while at the same time you're not getting what you deserve. The young boy scoffs like, really? I'm going to get away with this? You're going to let me walk and there's going to be no consequence for my fight? And the principal said, no, 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 there will be consequence. You picked a fight. Wrong actions deserve consequences. But you're not going to take the consequences. I will. And then he looked at the teacher who was with him who was poised with the ruler, start cracking over the palms of the young boy. But instead, the principal turned the teacher towards himself, and he put his palm out. And he looked at the boy, and he said, every time I get struck, I want you to count it. First strike. Looks at the boy, the boy sheepishly, quietly counts out. Again, principal looks at the boy, urging him on. Young boy counts out two. The blows continue. Three, four, five. But now the boy is counting out with tears in his eyes. By the sixth blow, the boy can't take it. He says, stop it. That's my punishment. I deserve it. I picked the fight. But the principal shook his head and continued. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Then when the blows were finished, the principal took his red and swollen hands, put them on the shoulder of the sobbing boy, said, this is the lesson I don't want you to forget. This is grace. I share that story with you because I think the Apostle Paul has a lesson for his friends in the church of Ephesus and his friends in the church of the Chino Valley. And he wants us to learn a lesson. The importance, 
the power and the impact of grace. I'd love to share it with you. If you have your Bibles, we're in the middle of our study of the book of Ephesians. While you're turning there, let's make sure that we all define grace the same way. So my favorite theologian, Wayne Grudem, my second favorite theologian is Pastor Jeff Carter who works here, but he's not quite as old as Wayne Grudem, so Wayne Grudem gets the nod. Grace is defined by Wayne Grudem, God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. That term grace is used 124 times in the New Testament. 84 times. 84 times of those 124 times was used because of the Apostle Paul. Man, no one in Scripture talks about grace more than the Apostle Paul. Perhaps no one felt like he needed it more than the Apostle Paul. But let me remind you of some things that the Apostle Paul said about grace. Romans three twenty three and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, Gretchen and I were at Chicken, uh, chicken Filet. Sorry, that's what we call it, Chick-fil-A. And a little boy from our church came up and recited this verse to me. Man, I love it that our little kids are learning about the grace of God at a young age. Paul also talked about grace earlier. We went through this last week, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul said this, By grace you have been saved, by the goodness of God, towards people who deserve only judgment. By God's goodness you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves as a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Man, Paul wants to make sure you understand the importance and the power of grace. It is a foundational element. Your salvation is not something you earned. Your salvation is not something you achieve. Your salvation is based solely on the gift of God given to you who deserve only punishment. Grace is God's goodness. God's goodness given to those who deserve only punishment. As we go into chapter 3 now, the Apostle Paul wants us to learn three important truths about grace. If you want to understand your Christian identity, if you want to value what you have and you want to understand what it's supposed to stir in your life, Paul says there's three truths about grace that you need to understand. Let's start in chapter 3. For the first one. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which is given to me for you. So right in the middle of his letter, Paul says, Hey, I'm a prisoner. A term prisoner. He's in shackles. He is bound with chains. He is without his deserved freedom. He is a prisoner. He says, for the sake of you Gentiles, on behalf of you, because of you, I am in chains. Because of your benefit, I am a prisoner. He says, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace. The term stewardship means that it was God's plan all along. 
This arrangement of God that he had set up. This is the purpose of God for Paul to be a prisoner. In fact, look back at verse 1. He says this, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He didn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of the Jewish leaders who don't agree with my message. No, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Look, I'm here because of Jesus. Let's go back to uh, the book of Acts. Let me remind you how he ended up a prisoner. If you have your Bibles, put your thumb in Ephesians, flip to the left, a couple books, to the books, or to the book of Acts, chapter 21. While you're turning there, let me catch you up on the context. Acts 21. Paul's wrapping up his third missionary journey. During his third missionary journey, he was taking an offering from the Gentile churches to bring back to the Jews of Jerusalem and Judea. These Gentile churches recognizing, man, what a gift we've received, the grace of God. They sent Paul out to us. These Gentile churches recognizing the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem were having a difficult economic time. So Paul's bringing an offering to them. And by the way, Paul knows that he's going to be persecuted when he gets there. Paul finally arrives That's where we're going to pick up the story. Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. Look at what Luke says. He says, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they began glorifying God. Wow, Paul, that's great. Everything God's doing. And then they said this. They said to him, you see, brother, hey, great work, everything you're doing for the good of the Gentiles. Here's the problem. There's thousands here among the Jews of those who believed and they are zealous for the law. They've been told about you. They're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs, which that wasn't what Paul was saying. Verse 22, what then is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you've come. Hey, Paul, we're grateful of everything God's doing. There's trouble a-brewing. Verse 23, therefore do this, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so they may shave their heads, and all will know that there is nothing to the things which have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided they should abstain from food, from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood and strangled and fornication. Then Paul took the men the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification till the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Now, you got to remember, there's nothing in between Paul and God. Like Paul is good with God. God did amazing things through Paul. Paul showed up at Jerusalem with this great offering. Hey, not only is God doing this amazing stuff, but they want to serve you. He meets with the leaders of Jerusalem. They're like, hey, great, Paul. Thanks for all your work. Here's the problem. These other people, they don't believe you. So great expense to you, Paul. We want you to go through this extensive and expensive purification ritual, which God doesn't require of you. We're asking to do it out of the kindness and generosity of your heart in hopes of peace with the other people. Paul does it. 
Let's continue. Next two verses, verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law of this place. Besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Again, Paul hasn't done anything wrong. But these people stir up trouble. He gets arrested. And this sets a years, years and years journey. Multiple trials, false accusations, beatings at the hands of many different people. It's during that time of prison that Paul's writing letters to the people of Ephesus. He's saying, there's something you need to understand about your Christian identity. Man, how is it that Paul can continue to celebrate and talk about the glory of God and be a fruitful minister of the gospel when in prison wrong, wrongly? And don't think that Paul is upset about what it's costing him. Paul's in prison for the gospel, and I don't think he's upset about it. Take your, now you're an axe, flip over to the right to the book of 1 Corinthians. Let me show you something else. 1 Corinthians 11. We'll be done flipping around in a minute. So those of you whose fingers are tired, we're almost done. 1 Corinthians 11. Nope, that's not the right verse. Let's try 2 Corinthians 11. See, this is why I should check my notes. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 11. Just kidding. 2 Corinthians 11. Look at how Paul talks about his suffering. Starting in the middle of verse 23. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. He says, I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. And he's just starting. Look at verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, one, one whipping short of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold exposure. Like, who's ready for that life? Or like, man, how did Paul continue to just live this life? What did he know that we don't? What motivated him? Verse 28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And you want to know what motivated Paul? You. You want to know what got Paul up every morning? He got stoned, left for dead, got up and walked back in the city. You know why? You. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul's like, I am all in on you. Man, my life is devoted to serving you. First truth, I think Paul wants to make sure we know about the grace of God. Grace is worth suffering over. Man, the grace of God is worth suffering over. Paul says, I'm suffering. 
I'm in prison because of the grace of God that was given to me, a message to bring to you, and I'm suffering for it. And Paul's like, I'll do it again. The grace of God, the truth of God's goodness given to those who only deserve punishment. Paul says that truth is worth suffering over. And I was writing that down in my notes, and I thought, yeah, but that's Paul, right? Paul's kind of nuts like that. He's an extremist. We all know Christians like that. Well, they'll charge hell with a squirt gun, but what about us normal people? Here's the thing. I think there's Pauls all over the world who understand this truth. Recent statistics from 2022, just last year, it's estimated that 360 million Christians are persecuted to a very high degree over the grace of God. Just last year, 360 million Christians are persecuted to a high degree over the grace of God. Every day all over the world, pastors in China, India, Middle East, risk their lives and their freedom over the grace of God. And this isn't new. One of the first Sundays that I was preaching as a lead pastor here, I came in early, it was met with an email from ministry people that we partner with in India. Let us know, one of the church planners we partnered with, you know, India's quite a few hours ahead of us. So when those Christians showed up to church that day, they found their pastor chopped up in the four pieces, lit on fire on the doorstep of their church. They walked up and saw their pastor burning. Want to know what they did? They buried their pastor, and then the associate pastor got up and preached about the grace of God that very day. Man, what did that associate pastor know? That we don't. What did the Apostle Paul know that we don't? What do 360 million Christians around the world, what do they understand about the grace of God that we don't? Number one, the grace of God it's worth suffering over. My question for you, with so many around the world who are willing to suffer over the grace of God, how much more us with all of our freedoms How much more should we be motivated to share the grace of God with someone? Let me tell you, I've had a number of people saying, Brian, what's going on in Israel? Man, I think Jesus is just on the other side of the clouds. Man, if that's you, I pray you're right. But you should be even extra motivated to share the grace of God. Man, if you're one who just thinks Jesus is on the other side of the clouds, man, get to work. The grace of God is worth suffering over. And we know that Jesus is coming back any time. None of us know the day. At least I certainly don't. But we need to be about his work until he does. Paul is writing to his people, man, if you want to understand your Christian identity, if you want to understand the power of grace or something you need to know, the grace of God is worth suffering over. The grace of God, the message of the goodness of God wrapped up in the gospel. It's the power of salvation for all belief, for the Jew and for the Greek. I mean, for everybody. 
power of grace is worth suffering over. But this is the grace of God. It's, it's worth more than just suffering over. Paul continues, not only is grace worth suffering over, but it's worth marveling over. The grace of God is worth more than just suffering over, but marveling over. Let's continue, verse 3. Paul says, by revelation there is made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. That term mystery is referring to a secret, something that's beyond our understanding without assistance. Paul says, look, I mentioned it briefly before, and just go to Ephesians chapter 1. This was our second week in the series. Paul talks about the mystery of God. Verse 9, he said, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, what's the mystery of his will? The summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. Paul says it this way in Philippians. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Man, you may be kneeling and confessing that in rebellion or in humility, but make no mistake, everyone will recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the will of God. But Paul gets a little more specific. Look at verse 6. I love it. Just to make sure you know he's trying to be more specific, he says it. To be specific, look at what the grace of God does. To be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given to me according to the working of his power. Paul says, you want to see something cool? You want to marvel over something? Let me show you what the grace of God does, the goodness of God given to people who only deserve punishment. This is what the grace of God does Those of you who were Gentiles, if you don't remember the horrible spot the Gentiles were in, just go back to chapter 2. You're dead in your trespasses. Formerly walked, you're aligned with Satan. You're indulging your flesh. You're a child of wrath, but because of the grace of God. He says, you are a fellow heir. A phrase, fellow heir, Paul says, you have rights as a child of God. First thing, fellow heirs. You have rights as a child of God. There's not levels. God doesn't love some kids over other kids. You're a child of the king of all creation, and you have a claim to the inheritance that comes with that position. Man, the grace of God does that. Just deems you an heir of all creation. Not only are you fellow heirs at the same level, you're fellow members. Your fellow members, you have a role as a child of God. You have a responsibility as a child of God, member of his kingdom. You have a role. You have a job. You have a part. Look back at Ephesians 1.18 again. This was Paul's prayer, right? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you would get it, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, right? 
man, that you would get excited and anticipated of what being a member of the kingdom, being a fellow heir and a member of the kingdom of God that affords you so much more than just huddling in a corner and saying, come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Man, you are a member of the kingdom. You have a role in the work to build the inheritance of God. We do so much division as American Christians. We individualize our faith. It's important we recognize not only do we have a role, we are fellow members, not just with each other as a church, with other Christians and other churches of the Chino Valley, other Christians of other churches all over California, even Arizona, Texas. We're fellow members together with people in Estonia, Ethiopia, Ecuador. God says, you want to, or Paul says, you want to understand the power of grace, man, marvel over it. Man, the grace of God makes you a fellow heir. It makes everybody who submits their lives to Christ fellow members of his family. Millions and millions also fellow partakers. Fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. When we think of partakers, we think about people who take. But that term partakers means that you're a stakeholder. You're an official partner. You're sitting around the table of someone who's responsible for the promise of God. It doesn't mean you just get a debit card and you just get to withdraw. And you're, in, you're responsible for the entirety of it. And look at what Paul says. He continues, verse 8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. Paul says, man, you won't marvel over grace. Not only does it, does, it, it does all of that for you, but it did all of that for me. And look what he calls it, verse 8. He says, it's unfathomable. The unfathomable riches of Christ. That term unfathomable means it's impossible to fully understand the impact of grace in your life. Paul's like, you want to marvel about something? Science, technology, the wealth of these people that have billions and hundreds of billions of dollars. Man, you want to marvel over something? Marvel over the grace of God. Or because of the grace of God, you get his goodness. Even though you deserve nothing but his punishment, you get his goodness. If you're like me, I wonder... We sing about the grace of God. We talk about the grace of God. We memorize verses about the grace of God. We teach our children about the grace of God. Have we forgotten to marvel over the grace of God? Because of God's grace, we're able to be here. A diverse group of people, all here because of one thing, the grace of God. reminded my grandpa one of his favorite songs amazing grace I feel like just about every time he sang it he'd cry I think grandpa marveled about the grace of God we've grown comfortable we've grown callous 
We throw it around just like any other word. Paul says, you want to understand your Christian identity. The grace of God is worth suffering over. Man, as you're sharing it, as you're preaching about it, if anything's worth suffering over, it's the grace of God. Number two, it's worth marveling over. If you recognize everything the grace of God has accomplished for you. That song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. I thought about singing this, but I figured it would ruin it for some of you. (laughs) Wouldn't be a sweet sound. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And check this one out. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Man, I wonder, with all of our vast knowledge of Scripture, or multiple versions of the Bible, all of our ministry experience, have we lost the marvel of grace? Paul said, you want to understand your Christian identity. You need to know three things about grace. Number one, it's worth suffering over. Man, if you're preaching the gospel, if you're helping people understand who gra- the grace of God, the goodness of God towards people who only deserve punishment, And you suffer as a result. It's worth suffering over. Grace of God is worth marveling over. Lastly, grace of God is worth praying over. Man, if everything we pray about, Paul says the grace of God that you understand it, that you internalize it, and it transforms your life, man, that is worth praying over. And after Paul goes into the first half of chapter 3, talking about the greatness of grace, he then goes into one of my favorite prayers in all of Scripture. Paul says this, prays for three things I want to share with you. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. For this reason, because of the greatness of grace, I pray that he, that God would grant you, would give you according to the riches of his glory. Man, he, he's not having to parse this out. He's not having to worry about having enough according to the riches of his glory I pray that you'll be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The term strengthened means to be built up, fortified, reinvigorated in the inner man, the very core of your being. Paul's praying, I pray that you get grace that will fortify you, invigorate you, and strengthen you in the midst of the hardships and trials of this life into the very core of your being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That term dwell, you remember we talked about it recently. Doesn't just mean like have a portion of your life. That he's able to move in comfortably. 
that he can reside there comfortably without having to be dragged into things that Jesus is uncomfortable with. Paul's like, I pray you understand the power of grace. So when Christ is living in your life, he's completely comfortable and at home. Paul continues, and he says this, not only do I pray for strength, but I pray for understanding. He says, and that, and I also pray for you, that being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Man, if you understand the grace of God, And you comprehend what that means. That term comprehend, you'll be able to grab it, seize it, fully realize the love of Christ in your life. You understand grace. It changes how you view your relationship with God. The love of God is long enough to stretch from eternity to, ter- to eternity. The love of God is high enough to raise you up to the heavenly places where Christ is seated. But get this, the love of God is also so deep, there's no place too low where God's love can't reach you. Regardless of how you feel, there's no place in this life that is outside of the love of God. Paul's like, I pray not only for strength, that grace would strengthen your life, but I pray that you understand grace, that it might transform your understanding of your relationship with God. And third, he prays for empowerment. The end of verse 19, he says that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Now, some people understand that term filled up like it's some second filling of the Holy Spirit that that you can raise up to a second level of Christendom and you get this extra dose of the Holy Ghost and that's not what it means. Filled up to the fullness of God that your life is raised up to his standard. Paul's like, I pray that grace will transform your life, that your life will be raised up day by day to fill and fit the standard of God. See, we as Christians, I think we tend to compare ourselves to the weakest Christian we know, don't we? Well, at least I'm not like Joe. At least I'm not like that guy or that lady. We compare ourselves to the lowest standard. Paul says, I pray when you understand grace, it's going to elevate you where you compare yourself to the highest standard. You'll be raised to the level of the image of God himself. That your life will reflect the purity day by day, more and more, a pure reflection of who God is. You might say, Brian, that's impossible. Brian, you don't know my life. You don't know my heart. You don't know what I've come from. You don't know what I struggle with. You don't know about all the struggles I have today. And we go, it's like, that's impossible for us. Look how he finishes his prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Brian, there's no way. I can't imagine a way that my life can be a pure reflection of who God is day by day. Paul says, well, that's the great thing. Paul says, I'm praying to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that's already worked within you. God's already doing it. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Grace does all that, Paul says. You want to understand your Christian identity. You want to know what Paul has, what Paul knew, what 360 other Christians know. 
What motivates them to live life differently? Paul says they understand three things about grace. Grace of God is worth suffering over. The grace of God is worth marveling over. Man, what God accomplishes in your life through his grace, through his goodness towards people that deserve nothing but punishment. Man, it's awe-inspiring. And the grace of God is worth praying over that that truth, that power will transform our lives little by little. So I guess my question for you is, how does God's grace need to impact your life in a new way this week? How does God's grace need to impact your life? Maybe there's someone, you know, for a month we've been praying for a name. Some for you to share the truth of God, his goodness to those who deserve only punishment. So many of us wrote names on that board. And so many of us chickened out out of fear of rejection, what would happen. And maybe it's time. The goodness of God is worth suffering over. And here's my bet. You share the grace of God with someone you already have a relationship with that you know. I don't think you'll suffer much, if at all. I think you'll be marveled. I think you'll be amazed at what the grace of God can do in them. Because that's the second thing we need to know about grace. It's worth marveling over. The grace of God changes lives. It changed Paul. It changed mine. It changed you. Or it can. The grace of God is worth praying over. If everything a church can grow in, if anything that a church needs to model, if there's ever a a characteristic of a church that needs to be witnessed, it's the grace of God. It's not their political leanings. It's not their campus size. But man, if people can come here and recognize the grace of God, may we pray that that characteristic of God not only transforms your life, but it fills your home. And it's embodied in this church. What's one way the grace of God can impact your life this week? Let's pray. Uh, God, many of us are here because we do. We believe in your power. God, we know it's because of your grace that many of us are even allowed to be here. That while we're yet sinners in the depths of our brokenness, God, you reached out to us, forgave us all of our sins, and declared us to be children of yours. I pray. God, in our familiarity of your power, God, that we don't lose the amazingness of it, the marvel of it. God, restore in us the amazing quality of what you are still doing in our lives and in lives around us. God, give us confidence in it. God, that we'll have even more boldness we follow the model of Paul and the countless other pastors and missionaries 
parents, grandparents who endured costs and hardship for your glory. God, may, may it transform our boldness in conversations. May it transform our generosity in giving. God, may it transform our confidence in the future of your work. And God, I pray for people here who have yet to experience your grace. God, for people who are still buried in their guilt and their shame, who are still fearful that someone may find out about the reality of their soul. God, I pray you open their eyes and allow them to see you as I do. That they would see the opportunity of grace, of your forgiveness, of your goodness that you're gifting to them if only they receive it. God, as you empower them, if you give them courage to just repent of their failure, God, and allow their heart to reach out to you in need, recognizing their need for your grace. Jesus, I pray you respond as you've promised, that you would forgive them their failures. God, that you'd fill them with a joy that's overflowing, a peace that is beyond understanding. God, that you'd give them your spirit as you've promised that will lead them and guide them from this day forward in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. God, as they reach out to you, may you save them as you save me. May you use them as you use us. And God, will you remind us of our opportunity to celebrate you and all that you've done in our lives and through them together. Because of your grace, we pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.